We want to welcome you. We want to welcome all of our campuses. DeBerry, you guys in Washington, Robinson, Ross Traver, Wilkinsburg. We're glad that we can be together today to continue our worship. All of you at your campuses have had a great time of music, and now we continue our worship as we open your words. So let's pray together and ask God for his help and his blessing as we look at what he has to tell us today. Father, we thank you. You're God who loves us and cares for us. And of all of our campuses, we have communion today, and we know that as the elements are before us, it's a great reminder, a needed reminder, that you loved us so much that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we pray, Father, that we would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, prepare our persons to love you and worship you and acknowledge your great work uh, in our life through Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, open our minds and hearts to hear what you would want us to hear. And we ask, Lord, that we would leave uh, different uh, than, uh, than we came. Be with us, Lord, as we open your word in Christ's name. Amen. So how many of you would agree that Serena Williams is one of the greatest athletes in the world. Would you agree with that? Okay. I mean, she is one of the greatest athletes in the world. Think about her accomplishments. Wimbledon singles champion seven times. Doubles champions, Wimbledon uh, uh, six times. U.S. Open singles champion six times. Olympic gold medal singles and doubles 2012. Associated Press Female Athlete of the Year four times. And Sports Illustrated named her as the best female athlete of the decade. Think about that. Pretty impressive, isn't it? She's been a force in women's tennis ever since she turned professional in 1995. And last year, around this time, actually, she had a baby, September the 13th, 2017, and had some complications after giving birth and almost died. And here, a year later, she has made it to the back of her, to the top of her game, and uh, she was in the finals of the U.S. Open playing a 20-year-old Japanese newcomer, Naomi Osaka, for the championship. Now, the match was uh, pretty tense, and it got a little difficult, and Serena, uh, first of all, the umpire accused her of uh, having her, her coach coach her during the game, and in tennis, she can't do that, so she took offense at that. She was pretty irritated about that, and then she was just having some trouble getting the ball over the net a, a couple times, so uh, check this out. This is her telling the umpire that she didn't appreciate being called the cheater, and then what happens with her racket after that? If he gives me a thumbs up, he's telling me to come on. We don't have any code, and I know you don't know that, and I understand why you may have thought I, that was coaching, but I'm telling you it's not. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose. I'm just letting you know. Serena, Alina Dufresne, smash that one. Code violation, racket abuse. Point penalty, Mrs. Williams. For coaching Barbaronoglu, that's a point penalty. Extremely rare. Some serious damage to that racket, didn't she? 
After that incident, Serena could not let that allegation go that the umpire had accused her of cheating. And so she went back to him several times. She demanded an apology. He not only penalized her a point for throwing a racket down, but he penalized her an entire game for continuing to argue. So the big news of the U.S. Open was not that this 20-year-old newcomer won, but the news was the drama surrounding Serena Williams and the decision of the umpire. In fact, she was later charged $17,000 for her antics. Now, I do not fault Serena Williams for throwing down her racket, right? I mean, some of you have played sports. You've thrown your racket (laughs) or your golf club or smacked that thing in the ground pretty hard. And I don't know all the specifics of the rules of tennis, but I do know this, that regardless of, of gender or race or nationality, everybody has to adhere by those rules. Tennis, like every other sport, has these rules to play by. And, and the most telling uh, situation for me was not the match. It was kind of fun to watch. But the most telling thing was that Twitter was ablaze after this. And everyone started talking about what happened and who was right and who was wrong. And so the headlines the next day was this, Twitter agrees with Serena. Twitter agrees with Serena. She was right all these years of tennis rules are wrong. Regardless of the rules, the group now gets to determine who is right and what is right based on personal experience and preference. Group think comes with an inflated certainty that right decisions have been made because of mass agreement. Here's how one blogger put it. Social media has become a place where each person owns a newspaper and they are their own editor. Half-truths, downright lies, can be spread easily without having to convince others first. The fact that it is there and someone wants to believe it makes it true instantly. There's no need for verification. And even when proven wrong, the now-created groupthink will not believe it. Why? It doesn't fit the narrative that has been written in their life experience or in the biased view of others and institutions. doesn't fit the narrative. Social media has become a place where every person owns their own newspaper, and they are their own editor. I like that. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 1 as we continue our series. We've titled Unselfie, We, Not Me. And today we're going to consider the original story of we. The original story of we. Before we do that, I want to remind us why we're in this series. We're in this series because Scripture tells us over and over again that life is not about us. It's about others. We believe all Scripture to be true, and one of the hardest Scriptures to apply is one found in Philippians chapter 2 that says, think of the interests of others, what? Before yourself. Now, that's a hard one, isn't it? 
Think of the interest of others before yourself. So we could, our purpose of this series, we could say it this way, is to get over ourselves in order to live beyond ourselves. Now, thinking of that group think, I want to make sure we understand what we're talking about when we use the word we. First, we are talking about our relationship with God. That's where it has to start. He makes the rules. He puts forth the guidelines. Our relationship with him has to be settled, and our relationship with him has to be growing deeper. We call that in theology sanctification, becoming more and more like God as he grows us and challenges us. That's where it has to start. It cannot be based on groupthink. It can't be based on our experience. We're not polling people to see what the right uh, uh, morality is for this particular time. It has to start with God. After it starts with God, the other we is others. And here we, we just want richer relationships. But here's the deal. Unless we get this we down, this we is going to suffer. Our we with others is always dependent upon our we with God. It is our relationship with God and our growing in Him that really defines who we are and allows us to really function well in the we of others. So it's we, not me, and we're not talking about groupthink here. We're talking about God's Word and how that drives who we are, what we are, and how we interact with others. It's based on the great commandment, right? Jesus said, great commandment is, all the law can be summed up in this, love the Lord your God, right? Vertically, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then when you got that down, then you can love your neighbors as yourself. All right, so we want to look at first, uh, at the first uh, chapter of Genesis, and uh, we uh, look at this at the uh, last day. It's the last day of creation. Uh, God has uh, made everything else, and now he, life comes on uh, day six, and the crowning creation is man. And so we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now, we have to stop right there because something different has taken place. This is the first time we hear God talking, and he uses this plural pronoun. That's kind of odd, isn't it? A plural pronoun. There's a lot of common commentary on that. A lot of people believe a lot of different stuff. Some people say it's called a majestic plural uh, because God is so great, uh, I just doesn't work, so us would, would describe who God is. A lot of, actually, there are several commentators who hold to that. There are some commentators who say that it is the uh, angelic host that he's talking to. So God's creating everything, and he has this angelic host around him. He says, let us create them. Now, the problem with that is, he goes on to say, in our own image. So we're not created in the, in, in the image of angels. What I believe 
And what many commentators through history have believed, the church fathers held to this, Calvin held to this, uh, a more contemporary uh, commentator, Wayne Grudem, holds to this, that this is the, is the first instance, at least a hint of, the what? The Trinity. Now, we don't know how many, just plural, right? And certainly it is not the complete doctrine of the Trinity, but here is our first uh, statement that there is a plurality of persons in the Godhead. And as we look at the rest of Scripture, we come to realize that that's the what? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Six things about the Trinity as we think through our passage today. Six things we need to know about the Trinity. Number one, there is one God. There is one God. Now, there are many religions that are polytheistic, many gods. Christianity, and then what else? Judaism, and what else? Islam. All are monotheistic, one God. So that's where the Trinity starts. There's one God. Number two, one God exists in what? Three persons. That's where we take a different route than Judaism and Islam. We believe God exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Number three, each person of the Godhead is eternal, eternal. Jesus just didn't come to be in a Bethlehem manger. He always was. He was always there. He was always, there's never been a time when Jesus wasn't. God the Son has always existed. So the Holy Spirit has existed. It wasn't like, you know, God said, huh, you know, he, Jesus is going to ascend to heaven, so what am I going to do now? Oh, I know, I'll create a spirit to go live within people and empower them. The Holy Spirit was always there. So three, God is eternal. Number four, each person is distinct. God the Father is distinct from God the Son. God the Son is distinct from God the Spirit. The Son and the Spirit are distinct from each other. Each one is distinct. And five, each person has different functions. So let's think about two big areas here, creation and then salvation. First in creation, uh, the person of the Trinity function in these different ways. God the Father in creation spoke the creative word, and God said, God the Son, the eternal word, carried out the creative decree. And God the Holy Spirit, we read in Genesis 1-2, is there hovering over, demonstrating the presence of God over all creation. So let's think about that. Again, Jesus is not this little baby in a manger. We see him in Genesis chapter 1. He is the agent of creation. Again, how do we know that? One verse we could go to is Colossians chapter 1, 16. For by him all things were created. Jesus, God the Son, is the agent of creation. Heaven, earth, visible and invisible, with thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That's creation. What about salvation? Redemption. So in redemption, God the Father plans redemption. After Genesis chapter 3, 
separation because of our sin, and God the Father loved us so much that he has a plan now to send his son. It's Jesus, God the Son, becomes Jesus, God in the flesh, pays the penalty for sin. He dies on the cross for our sins. God the Father did not die on the cross. God the Holy Spirit did not die on the cross. Jesus, God the Son, died on the cross. And then after Jesus ascended to heaven, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and indwells us today, lives within us, and empowers us to live a life that pleases God. So we have distinct functions of the Godhead. So one God, three persons, distinct, different functions, eternal, and then we just have to conclude, this is a mystery. The Trinity is a mystery. We're not going to fully understand it. On our best day, with our best thinking, we're not going to fully understand this one God in three persons. Now, there have been a lot of ways to try to help us to do that. Uh, some people say it's like a it's like a tree, right? So you have is my mic okay? Would you guys just double check? I'm getting some weird sounding. You guys all right? Can you hear me? All right, it's good. I do want to be heard. Um, like a tree, right? So you have a you have a, a tree. You have roots. Then you have the trunk and you have the branches. One tree, but you have those different things. Some people say, eh, it's, I, we, they like to describe it like water. Water has three uh, ways, right, that it can be seen. So you're going to have liquid, steam, and ice. It's all water, but those different distinct functions. Um, others say it's like a, a prism. So you take a prism and you shoot light through it. And then these three rays come out. Now, those are all great ways to, re, to, to help us get an idea of the, of the Trinity, but they all fall short. I mean, there's nothing like the Trinity. A beautiful picture of the Trinity is seen in Matthew chapter 3. We won't turn there, but just jot down Matthew chapter 3, 16 and 17. When you're reading Scripture, by the way, just slow down and think about what would it have been like to be there? What would it look like? So in Matthew 3, you have Jesus. He goes to meet John the Baptist, and he's baptized, right? So when he, it says when he came out out of the water. So just think about this. God the Son is standing there soaking wet. And then what happens? The Holy Spirit comes in the form of a what? Dove and lights on his shoulder. And then when that's happening, this booming voice from heaven that the writers would have heard said, this is my beloved son. In him I am well pleased. With him I am well pleased. So think about that. You got God the son standing there wet, physical appearance. You got the Holy Spirit lighting on him like a dove. And then you have this voice from heaven, this beautiful picture of the Trinity. Now, why am I saying all this? Because the story of we begins with God. The story of we begins with God. In the person of God, we first see the we, the community, equal yet different, same yet distinct. In this, in this community, this desire for community, th this need for community is hardwired into us since we are made in the image 
of God. We'll get to that in a second, but how do we know that God hardwired community in us? Well, you got to flip over a chapter, chapter 2, verse 18. When you read the creation story, it kind of comes in two parts. Genesis 1 is like seven days of, six days of creation, and then God rested. And then Genesis 2 goes back, it's kind of like a prequel or, or more of a detailed story, and says, okay, here's the way man was created. Won't go into all that, but in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, the Lord looks at the man. Remember, the story of we begins with God, the plurality of persons, community, but he looks at the man, and there's no we. So what's he say? It's not good that the man should be what? Alone. God said that. Because God created man in his image. story of we begins with him, and he says, here's my creation, but there's no we. Not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. And every woman says, oh, great, I'm just a helper, right? That's not what the word means. That word is an amazing word. Think about this. The word helper is a word normally used to describe God himself. Throughout the the Psalms, God is my what? Helper. I will not fear. God is my helper. I'll never be put to shame. In In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, <clears throat> that word in the Greek <clears throat> sometimes is translated physician, the one who brings the remedy. Helper is, is, is one who completes what is lacking. Helper is one who supplies strength in the area of weakness. You see, man by himself, God said, that's not good. I'm bringing someone else in to complete him. Man was made for community. And certainly it starts in the family, the basic unit of human community, but it doesn't end there. In the Old Testament, it's not just the family. That's where it always starts. That's why it's so important that we do marriage right, that we do family right. We'll be talking about that during the series. But God says in the Old Testament, I, I want the story of we to continue in this nation of Israel. And you're going to interact together and do some traveling together. Some of the traveling you're not going to appreciate but as you go through the desert. But you're going to do this together. And in the New Testament, it's not only the family, but what else? It's the church. It's us. The Christian life, the life that God intended, is always about community. In fact, any person who says, you know what, I'm, I'm a believer I've trusted in Christ, man, nothing to do with the church. Now, I'm not saying, that they may say, I want to go to a big church, or I don't want to go to a small church, or they may just have some a group of people in, meeting in their home. I'm not talking about size. But if a person says, I, I don't want to be involved in community, I got to say, well, time out, time out. Have you really trusted in Christ? Because we were wired for community. And that's accentuated when we become believer. Man was made for that. Think about, the, think about the commands of Scripture. You cannot apply most of Scripture by yourself. You can't love one another by yourself. 
You can't show hospitality to one another by yourself. You can't serve one another by yourself. You can't honor one another above yourself by yourself. You can't carry one another's burdens if you're not connected. And how can you consider others better than yourself if life is all about you? Isolation, being alone, is always a negative concept in Scripture. Solomon said it this way, two are better than one. And then Solomon is kind of functional. Uh, They have good reward for the toil. One falls down, the other guy can help him up. Woe to him when he falls down. There's no one there to help him up. And again, if two lie down and they can keep warm, how can one keep warm by himself? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And then it's interesting, isn't it? Solomon's just saying, two, 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 and then three, a threefold cord. Now we're back to God, right? Because it always starts with him. The story of we always starts with God. You can't do the horizontal well if you're not doing the vertical well. I I would just say this. If you're having some trouble with the horizontal, if you're having some trouble in your marriage, in your family, I know there are real issues and there's real stuff going on, and I know it takes two in a marriage. But if you're having trouble there, I'm, I'm going to just go out on a limb and say, you may be having trouble here. Because when you get this thing right with God, it flows down through the horizontal relationships in our life. So the story of we begins with God, and he hardwired the story of we in us, and he did that by creating us in his image. Look at chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Now, what in the world does that mean? We talk about that all the time, right? We're made in the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Does it mean that we can become like God, or does it mean like we can, you know, go meditate someplace and put our, how do you do that? Put your fingers together and hold them out and and somehow self-actualize the God within us? No, it means this. Being made in the image of God means that human beings share imperfectly in God's nature. We share in God's nature. Okay, so what does that mean? Let's just think through it. Here are, um, here are what are called, let me give you several of these. Again, depending on who you read, uh, you know, you get, you get uh, a longer list or a shorter list. But these are called the communicable attributes of God. These are the ones he gives to us. These are the ones he he, uh, puts in us when he makes us in our image. And we're not talking about just believers here. We'll talk about how that works in a second. But here we're talking about mankind, men and women throughout the world. All have the image of God. All are made in the image of God. Begins with life, right? In him, scripture says, in him we live and we breathe and we have our being. In him, life comes from God. He is living and so he passes that life on to us. He breathes into us the breath of life. And then you know what else he does? He gives us this, this amazing 
power to produce life. He doesn't he didn't keep uh, making people from the dust. He says to Adam and Eve, now you're it. You can, you can make life. Think about that. When you have a little baby and you do that, um, that reveal party, right? First service, I called it the coming out party. That did not, not go over. But <laughs> <clears throat> I got that confused. So um, they corrected me pretty quickly, and I'm glad they did. Uh, that reveal party, right? And they toss, you know, the wife tosses that little ball, and you hit it, and poof, it's blue or pink. Very cool. <laughs> Man, think about that responsibility. You just brought into this world, you're bringing into this world, a living soul that's going to spend eternity in hell or heaven. Boy, that's pretty solemn, isn't it? Think about that. God gives us that responsibility. We're made in his image. Morality. We're made in the image of God. He gives us morality, a communicable attribute, a sense of right and wrong. Yeah, you go around the world, it's different. There are different laws and different things, but in, in people there's a sense of right and wrong. You'd be hard-pressed to find a culture where murder is accepted. There's a morality there. Do they know Jesus? No, but God hardwired them in his image. Justice. A pagan judge can sit on a bench, but that pagan judge upholds a law. In our country, it's based on the Judeo-Christian principles. And he may never had two thoughts about God, but God hardwired this sense of justice within him. And so a pagan judge can make a just judgment. Wisdom. We have the capacity to learn, and we have the capacity to help others as we, as we apply our learning. We have the cap capacity to love Throughout the world, human beings demonstrate compassion to love someone. Think about that. They're not believers. They may be way into another religion, but they love their kids. Most of them there is always perverted on this side of Genesis 3, but they love their kids. They love someone else in their life. They love their family. How did that, where did that come from? The image of God. Communication. We have the ability to, to interact with each other just like God interacts with us. Communication is powerful. Creativity. Just like God created these beautiful things around us. This is a beautiful time of the year, isn't it? If the leaves turn this year, I don't know if they're going to make it. But um, when it does, it's just magnificent around here. God's creation is beautiful. And think about it. When God makes mankind in his image every beautiful painting is a reminder what made in the image of God every technological invention is a reminder <laughs> we're made in the image of God every magnificent uh, musical piece is a reminder that we're made in the image of God emotions is another one we have the communicable attribute we have the capacity for passion and will is the last one I'll give you here. Just like God makes decisions, he, he gives us the capacity to make decisions. Now just let that soak in. Just let that soak in. 
We are made, that's not an exhaustive list. We are made in the image, the likeness of God, and he passes these things on to us. Now, why does he do that? Again, at Genesis 26. Let's make man in our own image, in our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. By the way, that man is not a male. That's the word Adam. That means mankind, men and women. He created man, mankind in his image, the image of God. He created mankind, and then he gets specific, male and female. He created them. So why, why did God why did God create us and, 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 and pass on these attributes? Well, two important points here. First of all, we are made in the image of God to represent him here on this earth. Think about that. You are God's representative in your home, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your community. Tag, you're it. God's purpose was an act of love for sure, but it was also functional. God wanted us to show others what he's like. Again, we do that through his image, but as believers, we're that light on the hill that we shouldn't hide, and we're to live our lives in such a way that, uh, that people look and say, man, you serve a great God. You serve a great God. Now, in the, in the ancient days, uh, if you were an Egyptian pharaoh, you would, you would take your image, you, know, you, were, you were not omnipresent, so you would take your image and have it all chiseled out, make it a lot taller than you were and bigger and, and, and impressive, and then you would put it, several uh, images, you would put them at different places in your kingdom so everyone would remember who you are. what God did? God said, I'm not making statues of myself. I'm, I'm making people. They represent me. They demonstrate who I am. And they speak on my behalf. Anyone know who this uh, person is here? Ambassador Nikki Haley. She is the United States representative to the United Nations. When she speaks, she speaks on behalf of the United States. She does not have the freedom to just say anything she wants to say. Her opinion. She is part of the president's cabinet. So she's speaking on behalf of the president and by extension on behalf of us. She is an ambassador. And so are we. Made in God's image, we are his ambassadors to speak on his behalf. We are able to love, we're able to feel, we're able to communicate. We are able to represent him and demonstrate to the world what a great God we serve. Secondly, we are made in God's image to continue the story of we. The story of we begins with God, right? But we are made in God's image to continue the story of we. Look at verse 28, and God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this does not mean 
Be fruitful and multiply does not mean have as many kids as you possibly can and have a great time doing it. Doesn't mean that. Certainly we have this, remember, communicable attribute, this power of giving life. But this verse is a command for mankind, God's representative, to continue building the story of we. Sometimes this verse is called the creative mandate. Creation mandate. One, one writer, uh, I love the way she puts this, Nancy Piercy, she calls it the first job description. Listen to what she says. In Genesis, God gives what we might call the first job description. But be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. The first phrase, be fruitful and multiply, means to develop the social world. Build families and churches and schools and cities and governments and laws. The second phrase, subdue the earth, means to harness the natural world, plant crops, build bridges, design computers, compose music. You see, when God says have dominion, he's saying, you're my representatives. I want you to show the world what, it, what I look like, and I want you to continue the story of we and all the things that go along with it. Now, that's in Genesis 1 and 2, and we all know that Genesis 3 comes after Genesis 2. And the essence of Satan and the essence of temptation is always to leave God out of the picture. And next time, we'll talk about the original selfie taken by Satan himself. We want to leave God out of the picture. We want to post it on Instagram, and we want to write under it, me, not we. More on that next time. But this we know. After Genesis 3, our relationship with God is broken, and we're still made in the image of God after Genesis 3, but it's, but it's marred, and it's, uh, it's imperfect. Although we're made in God's image, now in Genesis 3, because of Adam, we, we take on, God's image is still there, but we take on the marred image of Adam. An, an image perverted by the infection of sin. And, and that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the first man, talking about Adam, was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man, who's he talking about there? God the Son, is from heaven. Now, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. So we take on, we still have God's image, but now it's marred and it looks a lot like the image of, of Adam. And as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven. When we trust in Christ, things start to change. We move into this process of sanctification, moving from the image of Adam, although it's always going to be there. We keep trying to break away from it. We'll break away from it finally when we die, but we're breaking away from it and looking more like Jesus or should be. Just as we, just as we have born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So now, 
we have been recreated by Jesus as believers to take on the image of Jesus, to take on the image that God always intended for us. That's why Paul says it, uh, this in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says, therefore, if any one is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation. We were marred, but in Jesus, things are changing. The old is gone, the new has come. By the way, that just doesn't mean yesterday I had this sin going on in my life, but now I don't. That means our, our image that looked more like Adam is changing to look more like Jesus. The old's gone, the new's coming. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and then gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And you say, what does that mean? So Paul's going to explain it. That is, in Christ, God was revealing the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to them the ministry of reconciliation. So we're no longer separated, right? And God is giving us that ministry of reconciliation. How do we do that? Well, next verse. Therefore, because he has given us the ministry of reconciliation, therefore, we are what? Ambassadors of, for Christ. Now we're back to these rep, being a representative, right? We're ambassador for Christ. Check this out. This is amazing. Just reflect on this this week. God God, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. God is appealing to the world through us. He's saying to the world, that's how you do family. Watch these people over here. That's how you do marriage. Even when it's hard, you stick it out and you stick together and you nourish that. That's how you do. Young people, you want to see what it's like to do sexuality and this sex perverse and, 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 and absorbed world, that's that Christian over there. That's that young woman over there. She does it right. I'm making my appeal through her. That's how you live a life of true freedom and significance and identity. The message of reconciliation, God making his appeal through us, and then Paul says, we implore you. Now he's talking to everybody. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew, no, who knew no sin so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. That's the process that we're on. 